alive. Woo! <clears throat> I'm just going to tell you right now, if you can't preach after that, go home. That was ridiculous. And here's a big difference between Roger and me, too. He did not let you know. He wrote that song to kick off this teaching series for us right there. That's a Roger Blevins original. I, I can promise you, if I had written that, you would have known it. My goodness. Tell your neighbor like you mean it with a smile on your face. Get your happy on. Man, that song just makes you feel happy. Makes me feel so happy, I thought I had rhythm there for about half a second. That was incredible. I'm convinced with everything that is within me because of observation, because of personal experience, and because of research, that you and I are absolutely obsessed with happiness. We are we're obsessed with being happy. Almost every single decision that you make, every choice that I make, we consider, will it make us happy if we do X, Y, or Z, A, B, or C? We think about these things, and we think about them so reflexively, most of the time we're not even aware that we're doing it. That's how ingrained within us this drive for happiness is. This is what Aristotle, the original Aristotle, not the big Aristotle, Shaquille, but the original Aristotle said about happiness. He said, happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. Now, I think what the original Aristotle was getting at here is that this really does drive everything that we do. The choices you make, the choices I make, we channel through the filter of happiness. But it's important that we understand we're not talking about the kind of happiness that comes and goes, ebbs and flows. We're talking about a very, very real kind of of happiness. And the thing that's amazing about our human brains is how well we can predict happiness. We have a powerful, powerful predictor in our brain. Our predictors work so well, as a matter of fact, that you don't have to actually taste something to know that you don't want it. Like you, you know intuitively, I want to try cookie dough ice cream. I don't want to try kale ice cream. I don't have to do the homework on that. I, I, can, I can predict that. But what is absolutely fascinating to me is how poorly our predictors perform when it comes to the really, really big, big choices in life. The things like um, romance, the things like elections, the things like uh, whatever you want to think of in the big grand scheme of things, we think certain things will make us happy when in fact research shows us that they actually do not make us that happy. Most of you, if I asked you right now, would a 40% raise make you happy? Look at the nodding. Some of y'all are cracking your necks already. Did you know that statistically, a shorter commute to and from work would make you happier than a 40% bump in pay? 
I know right now some of you don't believe that, but I'm telling you, that's the truth. We, we are not great at predicting what will make us happy. And so we, we start to think about these things, and I know some might even think, what, happy? Why, why are we talking about happy at church? That, that doesn't sound very spiritual or very deep. Let me, let me tell you where this series came from. As a matter of fact, first of all, <clears throat> it, it, it comes from the Bible. That, that's where we start. But I want to share with you kind of how God started to work on me in this area. And it came through a, a very unlikely channel, actually two channels. Number one was my dog, Gus. And number two was our kids. Now, <clears throat> one day I was watching Gus playing in the backyard. And on this particular day, I wasn't even throwing anything to Gus. Gus is a Labrador retriever. He is bred to retrieve and go fetch and bring it back, go fetch and bring it back. But on this particular day, Gus was just running for no reason. And then he'd come look at me, wag his tail, and take off and do another lap around the yard. And as Gus's owner and master, I was just like, that is so fun to watch him acting a complete fool. He, he was running around the yard to no end. How many of you run for exercise? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, I don't get that. But some of you do it, and I've heard some people actually enjoy jogging. I think you need counseling. But that's, that's my own personal persuasion. I don't have a Bible verse to back that up. But when I was watching Gus run circles around the backyard, I just started giggling. It just, just made me happy. And then I thought, you know, if I'm this happy watching my dog as a dad, I probably ought to be this happy watching my kids have fun. And I started thinking about Emily and Joe and Allie and Sylvie, and, and I started thinking, you know what? Actually, as a dad, I do enjoy watching them be happy. I enjoy, it's fun for me, you know, now that they're grown and they're out of the house and they're off the payroll, I'm really happy about that. But as they are living their lives and coming to their own as young adults, they, there's, there's something about that as a dad I, I really, really enjoy. And, and the, 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 I think the, the fullest expression of this happened just a few weeks ago, uh, a little over a year ago, Emily started dating this guy. His name's Jordan. We'd never met him. We hadn't done a background check on him yet. We hadn't, you know, run him through the police blotter or anything like that yet. And we kept hearing his name, kept popping up. Finally, we, we got to meet Jordan, really liked him, easy to talk to, easy to be around, kind of fit right into our family dynamic, super, super easy. And we could tell early on that Emily was really, really smitten. I mean, she, she, played, it, she played it cool, and she was smart and all those kind of things. And, but, I mean, you could tell, like, as a matter of fact, she would call us and go, Mom, Dad, I may be in trouble. I really like this guy. And we were like, just pump your brakes, be cool, be smart, be wise, but have fun. Be wise, but have fun. I know some people think that's a contradiction in terms, but it's not. Well, as the months rolled on, Julie and I kind of started going, this could be getting serious here. I mean, you know, he, he's been around now for a while. And uh, we would start 
conversations, I don't know, probably three or four months ago. And as we're having coffee of a morning, as we do every day of the world, we're sitting there talking and we're like, okay, like, George's been around, like, they could be about to get engaged. Do we really like him? I mean, like, really like him. Because it's one thing if he's a nice conversationalist. But when you start thinking about marrying your daughter, marrying your, your, one of your offspring, then you kind of, the, the bar gets raised a little bit at that point. And we decided, you know what? Jordan is a, a, a godly man. He loves the Lord. He believes that the Bible is God's word. He is so good to Emily. He is good for Emily. And yeah, he, he checks kind of all the boxes that you pray for and you hope for and you work for and you parent for. And I was like, yeah, I think we really do like him in this position, if you will. And sure enough, a few weeks ago, Jordan got down on one knee and he proposed marriage to Emily and they are engaged to be married later on this year. We're very excited about that. Very excited. But here was the capper. We love Jordan. We like him a lot. I mean, you kind of have to love everybody, but we really like him. Love having him be a part of the family. He's one of ours now. Um, But what we realized was, since Jordan's been in the picture, Emily is more herself than I have ever seen her in her life. She is more at ease. She is more receptive to his input and suggestions than she ever was to Julie's and mine. (laughs) And when you see your kid happy like that, everything else is a detail. And so when I saw that Emily was that happy, then I really liked Jordan. And it hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks. If that's how I feel as a fallen father, a human, fallen, Floyd, foibled human individual, how much more pure happiness and joy does God get as our perfect heavenly father from seeing his kids happy, from seeing his kids being fully and completely who he created them to be, growing into who they are, who he's called them to be. And that was when I quit distinguishing between happiness and joy. They're the same thing. As you read scripture from Genesis to Revelation, God does not distinguish between joy and happiness. As a matter of fact, throughout the Bible, God speaks to his prayer, his desire, his design for his kids, you and me, to be happy. This is is what he has created us for. The, The great challenge of this is that as long as we pursue happy for the sake of happy, we're not gonna get there. Happiness as an end unto itself is not enough. The more you chase happy, the more elusive it will become. The more you choose to be happy, the more true happiness you will experience. 
Sir Thomas Brown was a British physician and a philosopher. He was a real Renaissance man of the 17th century in England. This is what he wrote. He said, I am the happiest man alive. I have that in me that can convert poverty to riches, adversity to prosperity, and I am more invulnerable than Achilles. Fortune hath not one place to hit me. Meaning, good luck or bad luck can't change whether or not I'm really and truly happy. A little closer to home in our own day and age is Abraham Lincoln who said this. Lincoln said, a man is about as happy as he makes up his mind to be. Isn't that the truth? Now, the good news is that we all have that same thing that Thomas Brown talked about. We have that within us which can choose to be happy or not. But it's going to happen differently in your life than it does in my life. Some people have a happiness set point that is just a little bit easier to get to than others. Again, I would tell you, Emily, as a, as a child, Emily was one of those people, as a young person, she could come into a room and tell you exactly what was wrong and needed to be fixed and could be improved. It's just, a, it's a gift and a talent that she has. By the same token, her brother Joe has never walked into a room and seen any problem. Every day's a good day. Yeah, we're cool. Joe, those clothes don't match. Yeah, but I'm happy. His happiness set point is just a little lower than Emily's. It's a little easier to get to, but they both have the same ability to choose whether or not they will be, in fact, happy or joyful or delighted or pleasant to be around. <laughs> it's just, that's just kind of how we are all wired up differently. It's part of God's creative genius. Someone very close to our kids once said, you know, you both, Emily and Joe, y'all both think you have all the information that you need within the first five minutes, except for Emily, the answer is no, and for Joe, the answer is yes. You know people like that? How many of you are like, maybe like Emily, and, and you just kind of know when something needs to be better? Just raise your hand if, that, if that's where you are. That's, that is a gift. That's great. How many of you are more like Joe? Every day's a good day, we'll figure it out. Here we go, let it fly. That, that's, the, again, God's creative genius. But we all have the ability to choose whether or not to be happy. Nathaniel Hawthorne was, is kind of widely regarded as the first American novelist. This is what Hawthorne wrote about pursuing happiness for the sake of happiness. He said, happiness is a butterfly. That sounds like a novelist, doesn't it? Happiness is a butterfly. Happiness is a butterfly which, when pursued, is always just beyond your grasp, but which, if you will sit down quietly, may alight upon you. How appropriate that the author of A Scarlet Letter, the worst book ever written, would write about the fleeting nature of happiness. How many of you... How many of you I know we were probably all assigned the Scarlet Letter. How many of us actually read it? I read about 15 pages. That, thing, that was the worst book I have ever read in my life. Thank goodness we graduated from Nathaniel Hawthorne to Mark Twain. But that's neither here nor there. That's my own level of happiness. 
If you chase happy for the sake of happy, you will never get it. You see, God has created us for something much more profound. I want to give you a working definition of happy and happiness that we will use throughout this series. The definition of happiness biblically is a soul-deep satisfaction, fulfillment, joy, and contentment. A soul-deep satisfaction, fulfillment, joy, and contentment. It is that, that kind of happiness and joy that absolutely is not dependent upon circumstances. We, we all get happy. Like some of you, you know, if you have kids in our LHC Kids Ministry today, you know that it's Sunday, Sunday. We're, we're serving ice cream in the kids' ministry. That's a happy day. I don't care who you are. Ice cream makes you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, we have counseling available. But the kind of happiness that God has created us for is the kind of happiness that doesn't melt with the ice cream. It's the kind of happiness that goes to the very core of who we are and, by the way, is not dependent upon circumstances. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have many troubles, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. That was Easter last weekend. And because Jesus has risen from the grave, we can fight battles that he has already won. We can be in the middle of hard things. We're not denying the hard things, but within those challenging times, within those times of grief and sorrow and setback, we can, in fact, be happy. We can be joyful in that soul-deep kind of way. We, we can experience him in those, those kind of ways that transcend our troubles and supersede our struggles. You know, one of the things that I remember from college, and I, I, I vividly remember this from a class early on in college, was Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. How many of y'all remember Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs? You've ever seen that, that triangle or pyramid? It's a really interesting thing. If you think about psychology, psychology really came into its own during the late 1800s and early 1900s, and most of psychology at that time was devoted to psychological problems, how, how we got psychologically unwell as people, which makes sense if you think about the early part of the 20th century. You had World War I, the most death, murder, and mayhem that the world had ever known, and then came along World War II. There were, there were some serious problems to evaluate and look at. But in the 1950s, Abraham Maslow began to turn psychology from only looking at that which was wrong to looking at that which could be and starting to look at this thing that has since been born out of Maslow's study and others, positive psychology. There has been an explosion of research and data in the last 30 years building on what Maslow did in the 50s. Let me just, just real quickly go to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Some of you may remember this from college or some of you may have seen it in high school. If you start at the very bottom, we all have physiological needs. Need for air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, reproduction, etc. Then we move up from there and we have needs for safety. That goes to personal security, employment, resources, health, property, etc. <clears throat> up from there is this need for love and belonging that we all have. That's friendship, intimacy, family. The great George Burns 
said that a happy family is a family that lives in another city, but that's another sermon. Esteem. Esteem is that need for respect, self-esteem, status, recognition, strength, and freedom. And then Maslow said that self-actualization was the pinnacle of human psychological health and well-being. That when a person is self-actualized, they become more fully who they are, the desire to become the most that one can be. That was just the pinnacle. And Maslow was definitely onto something, but here's the problem with this humanistic psychological approach. And the fact is that you and I, in and of ourselves, will never fully actualize ourselves. You can't do it. I can't do it. We can't buy the lie that fulfillment is found within. Now, we do have the choice about whether or not to be happy and how to get there, but fulfillment is actually not within me. It's not within you. As a matter of fact, I want you to turn to your neighbor with a smile on your face. Tell your neighbor, you can't do it. That was awful. I love you too much to lie to you. Tell you what, try it, try it again with your other neighbor, your second choice, and turn to them and tell them, you can't do it. There you go. There you go. You see, we were created for actualization by God. We were created to be fully fulfilled, soul deep satisfied in connection with God and each other. The book of Psalms, I, I think, is a fascinating part of the scripture. It's the longest book in the entire Bible. It's more or less right in the middle of the scriptures. But in Psalm chapter one, we find a fascinating introduction to this whole book. The book of Psalms is written as a hymn book. It is worship. It is praise. But it is also different psalmists working out their faith through poetry, processing things, seeking God, seeking God's counsel, seeking God's comfort. Bono from U2 says that Psalms written by David were David's attempt at the blues, just, just laying his heart out there for God to work on and to do what only God can do. And in Psalm chapter one, the Bible begins this incredible hymn book, these prayers, in a fascinating way. Look at Psalm chapter one, verses one through three. The Bible says, blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Now, when it says blessed is the person, that word blessed throughout the Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, that word is a word that is equally translated as happy. It is the word, it's an adjective to say someone is blessed. They have been blessed 
by God. God has blessed them is the verb. But in that adjective form, in the Old Testament, it is the word asher, asher, A-S-H-E-R. Say asher. Asher. In the New Testament, like when Jesus uses it in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. It is the Greek word makarios. Say makarios. That means happy. It is this soul-deep sense of happiness to live in and live out of the blessedness of God. Now, it's fascinating to me when it says blessed is the person who does not walk in the way of the wicked or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to play along with this if you don't want to, but let me just ask you. How many of you, when you see delight and law in the same sentence, it feels like a contradiction in terms? Thank you for being honest. I appreciate it. It does to me. When I see delight, and I'm like, delight in the law? Tell me what to do. I'm delight in my own free will. Here's what we forget. The law that is being referenced here in the Old Testament, the law of Moses was the covenant relationship that God established between him and his specially chosen people, Israel. The law meant covenant. Covenant means relationship. When a couple enters into the covenant of marriage, it is the most intimate relationship that two people can ever share. And God has chosen to enter into that type of a relationship with his people. So when we say that we delight in the law, it's not just that we delight in keeping the rules because we like, we'd like to be rule followers, but we understand that the law means covenant. That, that's the same word for testament. The Old Testament is the Old Covenant. The New Testament is the New Covenant. It began here with the law, but then Jesus fulfilled the law of grace. Think about it as a parent. You start with laws with your kids, right? Do not cross that street. That's where you start for their safety. They're beginning to understand to trust you as a parent. But it's over here you go, go marry whoever you want to. Terrifying, isn't it? And yet, that's how we get there. That's growth. That's maturity. So we delight in the law. We delight in the covenant that God has called us into. And it's in this delighting that we find that full, soul-deep sense of security, of satisfaction, of fulfillment, of joy, and all that God has created us for. There are three things in this passage that I want to lay out for us this week. This, is, this will be the happiness challenge for the week. For us to take this passage from Psalm chapter 1 and put it into practice every day this week. This is the challenge. Number one, it's there in the passage. Choose godly happiness. Choose godly happiness. What does it say? Blessed, happy is the person who does not walk in the counsel of 
of the wicked. You choose, I choose, whether or not to walk in the counsel of the wicked or to walk in the ways of the Lord. That's the choice we make every single day. To choose godly happiness. Now, one of the things that is a challenge in the Christian faith is that there are parts of Scripture that we will not understand until we obey. It's only after we put it into practice that we begin to understand why it's there and why we can, in fact, delight in the law of the Lord. It's, we talked about this in the last series, the God of finance. We said, remember Malachi chapter 3, God says, as a follower of Christ, bring the whole tithe. Test me in this and see if I won't bless you beyond ways that you can even describe. It is only in the obedience of tithing that we experience the blessing of tithing. You, you won't understand it beforehand uh, until you experience it. It's once you take that step of obedience and begin to experience the blessing of God that you go, I can't believe I was resistant to that. I, I can't believe that I chose to disobey God, whether it's in that arena or any other arena. Certain things will only make sense once we put them into practice. Our tendency is to say, well, once I understand it, then I'll do it. I get it. That's my tendency as well. But that's not faith. Faith is trusting God and his word more than we trust ourselves, more than we trust our feelings, more than we trust what the world is saying or culture is telling us. We go to God's word and we choose godly happiness we choose to test God. We choose to try out what he says and to then experience it day in and day out. Choose godly happiness. Number two, in the happiness challenge, plant yourself in the Lord. Plant yourself in the Lord. It says that you will be like a tree planted by streams of water. What does it mean to plant yourself in the Lord? Well, first of all, you plant yourself in the Lord relationally with him. You pray with God. You open your heart to his heart. You pray and ask for his leading. In, in 49 years of following Christ, I've never heard the audible voice of God. But I have also never had a prayer be ignored. Anytime we pray to God, anytime we ask for his guidance, for his wisdom, his discernment, he answers it. He answers it by the thoughts that he gives us. He answers it by the choices that we make. He answers it by leading us spiritually because we've opened ourselves up to him. He, he leads us through his word, scripture. The whole Bible is God's word. From Genesis to just before maps, all of it is God's word. And it is there for the taking, for wisdom, for discernment, for understanding so we plant ourselves in God through prayer, through scripture. We plant ourselves in the Lord, in his people, by being a part of the church. I'm better as a follower of Christ because of you, because of the people in my life that God speaks into my life through. The encouragement, the iron sharpening iron, the challenging, the accountability. If I'm 
just going to church, that's not planted. But if I am the church, that's planted in the Lord. And it says that we are planted in the Lord like a, like a tree by streams of water. Trees that are planted by a stream, they never, ever go without nourishment. They have always got a running supply of nourishment and life-giving water. When you plant yourself in the Lord, you never run out. You, you never get to the end of God's goodness and his resources and his spiritual nourishment. And then number three, enjoy the fruit of happiness. Enjoy the fruit of happiness. It says, you're planted by the stream of water and its leaf does not wither. Its leaf does not wither. Isn't that a great promise? It's amazing, isn't it? How many of us know somebody who is maybe, let's say, I don't want to say old, but more advanced chronologically than you are? Somebody who's, you know, advanced a little bit, who is also very joyful. Do you know those people? Those are the, I love being around those people. They are, are, talk about giving life. They're the people who encourage you. They're the people who know Enough of, they've seen enough of life to know what we ought to get worked up about, what we ought not to get worked up about, what's not really a big deal. Those are the people, their leaves do not wither. I, I, wanna, I wanna be one of those guys. This, this is one of my life goals. I wanna be a cool old man. That's, that's what I really do, I do. I'm 56 years old. So probably a little past middle-aged. I don't know, I may make 112, but... Let's just say that I'm past middle-aged. By no measure that you want to use am I young anymore. And I realized too, <laughs> probably later than I should have, I, I am more than likely past my physical prime. I, it's probably not going to get a lot better from here on. I mean, I'm still twisted blue steel, but my peak was a minute ago. And I, I'm, I, by the way, I'm fine with that. But man, if I, if I could age in a way, spiritually and physically and relationally, that, that my leaves don't wither, that I'm, that I'm not shriveling up spiritually, emotionally, relationally, because I'm staying planted in the Lord like that, like a tree beside a stream of water. That's, that's what, and man, I gotta tell you something. I think that's one of the blessings of age. We, we have plenty of ailments, but there's some blessings too. You, you begin to enjoy the fruit of happiness. You begin to enjoy the fruit of staying planted in the Lord and, and you begin to experience happiness, that soul-deep satisfaction, fulfillment, joy, and contentment that only Jesus Christ brings. When God's chosen people, Israel, <clears throat> were wandering in the wilderness, they had left Egyptian slavery, 
but they also left a steady supply of food. And so they got out into the wilderness and they began to grumble. You ever grumble? I've grumbled. And God said, I got you. And he began to provide manna. Manna was a gift from God. Every morning, the ground would be covered with it. They would go out and scoop it up. On the day before the Sabbath, God would provide two days worth of manna and they would go out and scoop that up so that they didn't work on the Sabbath as an expression of trust and faith. And what was interesting about manna, the Bible tells us that if they, if they tried to grab more than they needed for that day, that manna would spoil. That manna would become infected with maggots. It's not a pretty picture, but it's accurate. That was manna. And it was with that historical fact in mind that Jesus said something very, very profound in John chapter six. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, manna. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You will never be hungry again in Christ. You'll never thirst for approval, money, romance, pleasure. You, you'll never chase happy for the sake of happy because in Christ you live in that state because you are planted in the Lord because you are connected to him relationally it's not just knowing about him it's knowing him John 17 3 Jesus said this is salvation that they might know you the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is the same picture of marriage that God gives us between a man and a woman. When a man and a woman come together in the most intimate relationship that two people can ever have, they are conveying the image of God in a way that no other relationship can. And it's, it's that picture of unity, of oneness that Jesus calls us to, that Jesus provides for us with the Father. That is soul deep satisfaction. Fulfillment.
joy and contentment. No matter what is swirling around you, it's Him. It's Jesus. It's always Jesus. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. If you're here today and you have never stepped into that relationship with Christ, then we want to give you the opportunity to do that. To pray just right where you are. A prayer of commitment, a prayer of surrender. And it's a surrender to the only one who will never take advantage of your surrender, but will actually fulfill that surrender with his presence, with his peace, with his power, with his grace and his truth. If that's where you are today and you want to begin that, then just pray. In your own words, something like this, just silently from your heart to God, say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you, all of it, holding nothing back. And I ask you for the grace to repent, to turn away from that and to follow you. Jesus, I choose to believe that you died on the cross and rose from the dead for me. And in this moment with this prayer, I accept. I receive this free gift. And in exchange for your life, I will give you mine. And I will follow you from this moment forward. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. ask you just to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a moment because this is sacred ground that we're on right now when God moves in one person's life the Bible says that all of heaven celebrates and so as a church we want to we want to celebrate and we want to help with the moments that follow in just a second we'll explain how to do that but right now as our heads are bowed for another second, if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment. Just as a statement, physically, of the commitment spiritually that you just made. And know that as a church, as a family of faith with you, we honor that, we celebrate that with you. And our family tradition around here is as you put your hands down, we're gonna put our hands together to tell you welcome home. Welcome home.